Hello, and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast where we cover magic, herbalism, and more. I'm Nick. And I'm Shannon. And we're your co-hosts. And today I'm going to be talking about desert magic and one of, if not the OG goddess, Ishtar. I'm so excited. Love Ishtar. Uh, we're in the desert, so I'm talking about a desert psychedelic peyote. And Ooh. I think it's a really good conversation to have, especially because there's so much, you know, kind of problematic appropriation that can happen in the woo sphere. So I think it's really good for us to like address the issues around it and talk about the ways that we can be better allies to certain super oppressed communities. Um, so yeah, I'm excited. And we also get to talk about MK Ultra. So very cool. Very cool. Um, but before we talk about any of that, I think we should talk about how did when did you feel the most magical this week? Yeah, so this has been um kind of a weird week, it feels like here in LA. Like we're in that weird May gray, June gloom type situation. Yeah, so like yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like constant nap weather, but yesterday I went to Wild Terra, my herb shop that I've talked about before, and I was wanting to buy, they have this like allergy tincture for Eric because Eric has really bad seasonal allergies, but they didn't have it. And then the girl was like, oh, but we have this great tea. And I looked at it and I was like, I have everything in this tea blend at home. So thanks but no thanks so it was really nice just to be like look at my very well stocked collection of herbs so i did make a blend which is like is really good i mean i have my own tweaks on it but my like allergy tea that i've been making for both of us is nettles yerba santa um there's yeah nettles yerba santa some mush marshmallow root powder a bit of like oat straw to help with the flavor because yerba santa can be really bitter and then some yarrow and then today for like the daytime blend i just added a little bit of like red clover blossom and some go-to cola but it's it's just nice because it's like this is my tea it's not like overtly witchy but to me it's like working with the plants and like my relationship with them is like so intimately tied to my witchcraft that it was like a very smug Virgo herbalist moment that also was like very witchy feeling to me. <laughs> and I, I do love that. And I love that you were just like, no, I've got this. I've yeah. got this at home. I was like, I can make an allergy tea. I wanted to buy their tincture because like I do make tinctures, but the problem with tinctures is they take like at least a month to make. So they're not exactly like an on-demand type herbal treatment, you know? Right, so, right, right. Like you gotta, you, you should have thought about this a month ago. Exactly. And it's like, I have plenty of tinctures, just not that one. But I am <laughs> really excited because I'm making a Brahmi or Bacopa tincture right now that I'm excited about. And I'm also making a passion flower uh, tincture. But I also and, have like Skullcap and Mugwort and like, but no well, allergy tinctures. And speaking of making things though, I did see that your bath teas dropped recently. I think probably yeah. since, we, since we last re recorded. They did. So that's been fun. They are, I'm very proud of them. I, so there's, it's, there's, it ain't easy, which is like a grounding and centering relaxation bath tea. 
I have Moon Age Daydream, which is a manifestation bath tea. And then Oh You Pretty Things, which is like a self-love sort of bath tea. So they all have like herbs and different like magical type of infusions. So like Oh You Pretty Things, I charged with like the High Priestess card and there's a rose quartz and all of them. And It Ain't Easy was, I think I did that one on, yeah, that's the one that I charged in the sunset on Beltane. So it's all about like release and reconnecting to like your purpose in life. And Moon Age Daydream, of course, was like charged under a new moon. Like, duh. Well, you know, just to kind of piggyback off of that, um, I'm kind of going in a different direction with my answer to that question this week and getting a little personal, but also talking about Beltane. And um, I had my first kiss with someone on Beltane. I mean, what a way to kick off horny season. Like truly, truly, truly. But, um, you know, like not probably anything uh, serious, but um, when when it did happen, um, he kind of stopped and said, finally, like in a film. And I was like, okay. You're like, like, this is my movie moment. Just like gonna do a heel pop real quick. Yeah, really. Yeah, absolute, absolute heel pop moment. But then also, unlike the other side of the coin this week, um, my ex from 1 million years ago has con- basically, con- I sent you the, I sent you the screenshot of the text. Yeah. Basically, basically said, I've never loved anyone else since we dated. And which was kind of out of the blue. I kind of like truly. Yeah. Uh, uh, out of, this is like a 10 plus year ago, this relationship 12 started. years ago, 12 yeah. years ago. So it's um, it's been a minute, y'all. This is not like an ex from a few years ago. This no, is like no, 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 no. Ancient like, history. So, yeah. And, you know, uh, so I, you know, I, I'm apparently a hot commodity this week. And I mean, you, you were in that Taurus season glow. Truly, truly. Like, and, and, and Venus just, moved into Aries like a few days ago too so I'm like come and get it you know I mean it's that and then it's so interesting that this is all happening I'm just curious to see how the next week goes for you because it's like Mercury goes retrograde on Tuesday and then it's like less than a week later we have the full moon on like another like eclipse because we're in like this crazy eclipse portal so it feels like Like, this is the time when I think a lot of, like, old shit is going to be getting trudged up, and it feels like you're getting, like, a preview to it. So I'm, we'll see what happens. I'm just curious to see how all of this evolves over the next week. Yeah, I'm, uh, me as well. Me as well. But let's, (laughs) let's go to the desert. Yeah, let's go to the desert. Um, we're, we're, like, packing up. We're going to go get a yurt. We're going to go glamping. <laughs> Just gonna kidding. Go, we're going to go glamping uh, at the Grand Canyon. So, but you oh, guys. No, you go glamping at Joshua Tree, Nicholas. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. Actually, I do, <laughs> I do really want to go do that. But like, please put a pin in that. Um, I will. Yeah. I, I also really want to go to Joshua Tree, but I don't want to do hipster Joshua Tree. And like, you know, because obviously I think y'all probably know this about Nick and I by now. We're like, we're more naturey people. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. It's like glamping is cute, but I wouldn't want that to be my exclusive experience of Joshua Tree. Truly, truly, truly. Anyway, uh, but I'm so excited. Desert magic. But so desert magic, an absolutely huge topic to cover here. So we're, of course, going to be a little creative with our time constraints, but 
Um, this is something I've been wanting to cover, actually, because when you spend a lot of time online in witchy spaces, you do start to become familiar with certain um, self-identified flavors of witch that kind of yeah. exist within the sphere. Um, what am I talking about here? So like um, forest witches, of course, that's a big one. And I, I would say just from what I see, it's like sort of a wilder sub-segment of green witchery, right? Yeah, it almost feels like a like a foraging green witch. Like a foraging green witch, absolutely. Yeah. Lots of mushrooms and things. Yeah, a lot of mushrooms. Very, very popular in the Pacific Northwest, it seems. Uh, yes, yes, yes. So, you know, there's forest witches out there. And then, you know, there's sort of swamp witches, which are uh, very much like a fictional thing, like, but also, you know, like there are people who are kind of in that niche. And I was about to say from Louisiana, it's also kind of your people. It, it absolutely is. It absolutely is my people. <laughs> um, and, you, you know, that niche is out there. And of course you have sea witches um, and like shout out to you for getting me that amazing book about sea witchcraft by Sandra Kynes which I have been perusing as my coffee table book for the last week or so. I love it. It was one of those like moments where I was like perusing for books for myself because I just got a book on the poison path, which I will, which we'll talk about at some point once I've read more of it. But that book came up and I was like, oh my God, well, I miss Nick's birthday because of all my crazy family shit. And I was like, and then this book pops up. I was like, this is for Nick. This, yeah. And it, well, and you know, it's like, I'm definitely that guy that like, like forages for seashells anytime I yeah. go to the beach. Like it's like I my just... dream is to take you to New York on Fleet Week. Oh like... my God. Yeah. <laughs> Honey, I'm I'm ready to buy the tickets. Like let's go. Let's go. But uh but really though, you don't in the year of our Lord 2022, you don't hear a lot about desert witches. And no. so going into this, I was kind of a little curious about that. And I personally think it has to do with the kind of person that might self-identify as a desert witch. Um, and, you know, it's really some like OG woo sphere stuff. Because I remember yeah. hearing about this in the 90s. And so I'm, of course, talking about these energy vortexes in the Sedona Desert. Um, yeah. and, and this is kind of one of those things where like, I, you know, I hate to call out baby boomers and just be like a stereotype, but like, you but really we love have... to call out baby boomers, but we do love to call out baby boomers, <laughs> but, but, but these are like privileged woo people yeah from, from like the sixties and seventies who would like go out to the desert. Yeah. They're the people who were trekking there from like the Bay area. Absolutely. Absolutely. And here's the thing, you know, I really, I don't inherently see anything wrong with that, but I can see why lots of people find them annoying. Um, and, you know, it's like all these like leathery baby boomers having yoga retreats in the Sedona vortex for the other leathery baby boomers, you know, in your chunky turquoise jewelry and your like shitty vegan food or whatever, like you know, oh, I just feel so aligned and so centered because I sweated for like a week and a half um, in a year. So Yeah, Eric and I were talking about it and it's like, say what you will about season four of Arrested Development, but them like starting that sweat lodge. It's like, look, 
if you're doing something that the characters in Arrested Development would do, you're probably on the wrong path, y'all. No, truly, truly, truly. Like the, it, you know, it's um, it's meant to be satire, and yeah. um, if you if you do stuff like that, then you're probably a not a great person. Yeah. You're also probably not listening to this podcast, but You're we all probably, know those hopefully, people. Hopefully not. Hopefully, hopefully. Not. But, we all, but we all know those people. We all know those people. But the thing with that too is that that is kind of like seen as like this luxury, almost like a spa kind of a treatment. Yeah. And like really, you know, it's like, you know, like these are the people who moved out there and then built golf courses. And like that's yeah. insane. In the parts of the country that like were Mexico. Right. It's like they moved out there, they got old, they built golf courses, and now you have um, Phoenix. Yeah. So, and, um, but no, so on the other hand, the, the other kind of person that might be uh, sort of inclined to be into this kind of thing is like white people with dreads who want to go like appropriate native sweat lodge culture and you know, maybe do peyote and San Pedro cactus, which actually, you know, that kind of tourism uh, does lead to some very unsustainable harvesting practices. And, you know, oh, it's, yeah, girl, which we will get into. Which we're absolutely going to get into. So, like, I'm, you know, yeah. we're, we're just going to pop a pin in that. Even. Yeah, put we're a pin gonna, in that, y'all, because it's we're just a, gonna pop a pin big in problem. That. Um, you know, and it's like we're we're appropriating native vision quest techniques with that, and it doesn't leave a good taste in your mouth, you know? And, like, everyone hates those people, or at least everyone I know hates those people. Like, you know, like the classic, like, rich white kid with dreads who does spiritual stuff. Yeah, the rich white person with dreads who thinks that they're, like, brave for taking off and living, like off the beaten path, but you know that in 10 years, they're going to be like working for a hedge fund. Right, right, right. And it's like, yeah, you went to school for finance and yeah. like no amount of going to festivals to see Tame Impala is going to like make you uh, spiritual or cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like, I'm really sorry about that. I'm it's like, this is that. a phase for you, which is like sad because I'm like, there could be good in that, but we all know that these are the people that this is genuinely a phase for. It's really just a phase. But, and then also, you know, like anytime there's a cult in America, it either starts or ends up in the desert, you know, like think Mormonism, you know, like the, uh, the, the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints, the. Uh, oh yeah. Oh. There was, um, there was an offshoot of. I think it's the Church of the Latter-day Saints where it's like now it's like the community of Christ or something like that, where for a while, like the leader was trying to get peyote okayed for them to use in church sermons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's so weird. It really is. And it, and none of this is really adding up to like good PR for the desert witch community. But I do. I feel drawn to this. Um Truly, there is something inside of me that really feels like a happy lizard when I'm just like in the hot sun and like I like the dry air and really like the scenery is like something from another world when you're out in the desert. Yeah, like, it's a very different type of thing than like greenery areas because you also have to remember that like cacti and almost all of the like succulents and stuff that grow in the desert take like decades to grow so it is this almost like 
you get this like ancient feeling around it kind of like you do in like the redwoods but it's like yeah because it's like these cacti have been growing for like some of them like a hundred years for the barrel cactus and stuff and it is just like you feel you can feel the how old stuff is like in a good way i think in the desert yeah 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 well and it's like how everything happens so slowly Mm -hmm. everything happens but then there's also there's this this sort of like preservative effect you know it's like when a tree dies in the desert like if you look in nairobi you you, people photograph these all the time but it used to be a lot greener there and now as the sahara desert has kind of encroached on the area but you have these like petrified trees because there's like no moisture in the air so everything and it's like um sort of like the bones that dry out in the sun which actually you know for all you baba yaga desert witches out there like really nowhere else in the world do you get sun bleached bones because in a place where it gets any amount of rain there's moisture and like moisture it does it you're, you're not going to get sun bleach bones. I'm yeah, sorry. Like, things rot when they're things wet. Things rot when they're wet. But, you know, there's there's kind of that cool thing that happens that you always see in those, like, awful, 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 like, Texas yeah, desert, the- desert paintings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, like, the cow skull yeah. and, like, the broken fence post, you know, like. Yeah, with a tumbleweed. With a tumbleweed. Truly, truly, truly. Remember that painting I did? That was pretty much that. Oh, yeah. Uh, also, though, like, like real talk for people that have never actually seen a tumbleweed when we were up in like amarillo one time there was a really bad windstorm and a bunch of tumbleweeds were coming and they like scraped up the side of our van because like (laughs) irl tumbleweeds are fucking ferocious yeah they're they're bigger than you would think they would be and they're a lot woodier than you think they would be they're a lot sturdier than they look they're they're not like big fluffy cotton balls they're like scratch your ass up they're like bushes they're like bushes that have figured out how to move it's not um, cool. <laughs> it's 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 not cool. It's not cool. Um, but it is cool because that's fucking weird, and weird stuff happens that in the desert. Weird. Um, but so really getting into it, I what I kind of wanted to do here was to talk about what I think is cool and magical about the desert, and perhaps by doing so, make a case for why desert magic may be primed for a bit of a revival. And I think the first thing that comes to mind is that when you are in the desert, you are typically very far away from civilization, as the desert famously lacks the things you need for a thriving settlement. Water. And so I think the isolation is very much part of the mystique. Um, And actually what's cool about that too, though, is that you can probably see a lot of the stars at night when you're in the desert. Not a lot of humidity, which means there's not a lot of haze. You're far away from civilization. Truly, truly, truly a recipe for maybe even being able to see the Milky Way, which as someone who loves space, that's cool as fuck. Yeah. Um, It is both dope and fresh, truly. But yeah, I, I think it does lend also, you know, it's like when you can see the Milky Way at night uh, yeah, against this backdrop of like cactuses and mountains and shit like that's mystical that's a mystical landscape i'm sorry like there's no other word for that yeah um and since we did already mention the sedona vortexes vortices i think it's vortices i think it is fair to mention again that weird stuff happens in the desert so you know those stones in death valley like that move on their own 
and they leave the trail behind them like they've been scraping along the ground but they really only move a couple of millimeters at a time yeah i mean it's like that scene and everything everywhere all at once <laughs> it really really is um but i mean even the name death valley sounds witchy as fuck like oh it sounds, yeah 100%. like percent like death a valley. valley of death a valley of sign death. me up si- i want to go um but okay but there's also this idea of transformation which really piques my interest uh and so when we think of deserts we do think of the sahara sedona the gobi desert the atacama desert in a word we think of sand yeah. We think of sandy places. And you think yes, of dunes. Dunes. Oh my God. And sand dunes, like slow motion ocean waves. Yeah. And you, you actually, it's so hard to navigate in a place that has sand dunes because they change all the time. They move. They move, which is insane. It's absolutely insane. But, um, and yeah, you guys, I know technically Antarctica is a desert because it doesn't get a lot of precipitation but that's not what anyone is thinking of. And you can stop being an inseparable know-it-all now. Yeah, I know. When you say desert, no one's like, Antarctica? No. <laughs> no, one, no one's like Antarctica. Um, no. So just chill the fuck out. Okay, this is my segment. And we're talking about sandy deserts. Okay. But on the topic of transformations, all of that sand was literally on the bottom of the ocean at some point. And then geology did its thing. And a desert was born, which is really such an extreme transformation. And obviously, there would be something to that transformative energy, magically speaking, Um, like a sea becoming a desert. Uh, Very big symbolism there. Yeah. I'm like, if you want to talk about like fucking transformation magic, like I feel like a new moon in the desert. Oh, absolutely absolutely and i i i did kind of want to touch on that too because there's this like transformative effect on people so like in the bible which we do not quote a lot so bear with me people but moses leads the jewish people through the desert for 40 years trying to uh you know get to the promised land and you you could really think of that as this like a collective cultural vision quest um And Jesus, like the Jesus, um, not Jesus, you know, uh, he goes on a journey into the desert for visions of his own. So, you know, even in biblical times, like we're we're talking about going to the desert to, to receive visions, to change, to transform and to come, to come back as like a different person. You also, I also have to talk about dune like oh, paul atreides like becoming the muad'dib and like the dune first of all can be read as such an interesting ecological book but mm-hmm. also later in the series there's like this process where they do try to transform the desert island like the desert planet into like this lush verdant like tropical place which does happen and so it's like the Dune series, I think, very much gets at, like, the magic of the desert and what you lose when you take that away. Like, when you turn it into just, like, another forest, it just, it loses that, like, je ne sais quoi. Um, You know, and then 
Of course, in America, you do have native cultures who find visions and prophecies by virtue of going where? The fucking desert. Yeah. Um, But then you have the animals and plants in the desert being transformed as well. I mean, you take something like plants, right? Most plants on land branched off from things like ferns and tree ferns even, which thrived in a moist tropical environment think dinosaur food right yeah tree stars they're tree stars tree stars tree ferns um but when a water loving organism like a plant meets the desert it becomes a cactus it becomes a succulent it's an alien it's an alien life form and it's so different from anything else you see on this planet as far as a plant you know you look at a tree it's a tree I mean you know like I I don't want to but there's like a there's like a basic form and function that most trees follow um and and a cactus is not like that and like it's not a you know it's not a vine it's not a, a perennial herb it's yeah, people that collect succulents, it's like a very different type of collection than like an aeroid collection. Like if you're collecting aeroids, like all Monstera rhyme when you look at them. Like the yeah. Siltipacana, like the different, um, you know, all sorts of different things. But like succulents are not like that. And, you know, but we've mentioned this before on the pod, but for those who can grow cacti the way these plants protect themselves and are so hardy, like really to me makes them a natural choice to be like protective plant allies. Oh yeah. Uh, And as far as like witchy supplies go, using like a nice big needle from a feral cactus or another similar species um, to like use as like a quill to like write out a protective spell or sigil. Oh, I love that. Like really... Uh, it makes big sense. It you can even use s- it to like carve candles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could use it as a tool. Um, and, and and yeah, you know, it's like we, we have these natural kind of supplies and like th- this natural association, again, with like protection and, I, you know, and, and you, when you look at a saguaro cactus, it, it also like protects the little animals in the desert, you know, like they, they kind of like burrow in and, and can be protected by the cactus and, and get their food from there and get their water from there. And there's just this very protective, almost kind of motherly energy to a cactus, which I do yeah. think appropriate on Mother's Day to mention. Um, but then also I did kind of want to talk a bit about like aloe vera as well a, a, another very good deserty witchy plant ally and so obviously it's great for your skin it's good for your digestion like there's a lot going on there but also I mean just like the texture of aloe vera gel and like I know this is kind of weird but I think it's kind of like sexual in a way oh yeah yeah I could see that it's very um like sticky moist yeah 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 like you know when you like break the aloe and like the 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 gel kind of like stretches in that Mm -hmm. way and it's very uh very much like something that might come out of a a human body Mm -hmm. um it also kind of tastes like that too but that's neither here nor there that's neither here nor there um 
but uh, I've made Shannon choke on her tea. So I, you know, goals, goals. Um, Always. <laughs> but okay, but a lot of things in the desert do have these adaptations to harsh life. So think like spiky lizards, stinging scorpions, <laughs> and like a whole range of terrifyingly large spiders. And I am I am scared of scorpions. I don't have a lot of phobias. I'm scared of scorpions. They're, I mean, it's like the way they move. Like there's just I, and and like the 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 little the little pin, pinchy boys. Uh, I don't. Yeah. yeah, it's too much. It's it's like it's like a spider and a lobster had a baby, which I really like not okay with. Nope. But where did where the where did that happen? The desert. The desert. The desert made that happen. You know. So scary. Um. But okay, but something else that kind of gets my brain buzzing kind of around this topic of desert witchcraft is like the way that water works in deserts. So it's either deep in canyons, you know, and kind of the idea with the canyon too is that the canyon protects it a lot from the sun, which helps it to not just evaporate. But also underground. So that's why you have so many like caverns and stuff like in New Mexico, yeah. in Arizona. I mean, um, the sort of like Navajo, Pueblo, like the, those kind of like that particular family of native tribes, you know, kind of like building into these caverns even for shelter. Um, and all of that is just because of the way water is in the desert. Like it's not just flowing in a river. Yeah, that's why it was such a big deal when Paul Atreides shed water for the dead. Right, right, right. And it's really like, I don't know, it's, and it, it's, there's, there's really something to that, I, I think, like magically. And like, you know, kind of the thing too with like dowsing, you know, where it's like you, you have the little dowsing rods and you can, and they like cross when you're like over the underground water. Yeah, like the, the, there's a lot going on with that energetically, and you know they think that might be part of the function of the Nazca lines, um, because if you go out over the Nazca lines with um, with dowsing rods, they'll they'll cross on a lot of those lines. So they think it might have actually been water maps as well as um, you know labyrinths. It's kind of a combo, um, which is like a very dope combo. Yeah, two for the price of one. Two for the price of one. Um, and oh a, an oasis like oh my the, god I, yeah. the, the, the idea of an oasis is absolutely insane and actually like really 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 ma magical to me like the idea that like the water just is like coming up to the surface in the middle of a desert and like the trees and the animals have somehow like all made their way to this one spot because that's like where the only water is and it's just like this little island of life um yeah it's wild and but to me like i water is very much part of this like awakening that must be happening in the desert because everything you need to live isn't there and i think kind of the further away you are like the more you realize that water is the mother of life and it's so precious and it but it is crazy to me too that there's even life in the desert you know like yeah that there were things that stuck it out like that our planet is so alive that even in the desert there's snakes there's camels there's tarantulas 
there's mice and birds living in the cactuses. There's bats that pollinate the cactus flowers. There's... Oh my God, fruit bats are so cute. Like little little bats. I love bats. And, and there's like this whole community of animals that like makes their living off of like morning dew and each other's blood. Like to me, witchy as fuck, okay? Yeah. But I think there's also this kind of warning in the desert. So, and you know, not to be on a high horse here, but like every other rocky planet in our solar system looks like a desert to us because nobody else has water and so when you look at mars it looks like the desert you know like when you look at the surface of venus it looks like the fucking desert and like really we're so lucky to be here and you know like the fact that we have these places where where we can go and just kind of see like this really primordial landscape like what would the world be like without life or as much life Uh, because there's life in the desert it's just you know underground all day Um, and sparse it's sparse and and it's very sparse it's very sparse so you do kind of get this feeling of like being in another world um and I don't know but but the warning is there the 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 warning is absolutely there that like we should kind of take better care of stuff or else the whole world's going to be desert, you know, like. Yeah, which is happening. Which is happening. And, you know, desertification isn't 100% tied to human activity, but we are speeding it up. Yeah, we're making it happen way faster. Because you know what happens is the trees that you cut down are actually holding the topsoil in place. Um. And so when they're gone, the topsoil blows away and uh, what's underneath is is sand. It, it's a dust bowl, y'all. It's a dust bowl. Um, and that's, I mean, that's what happened in America. And, you know, so, but, but really kind of what I wanted to do here again was just kind of talk about like what I think is cool about the desert. I really think it's like an underrepresented flavor of witchcraft and, something that I'm personally interested in exploring more. And like, you know, I think for, for this episode, like it really kind of made sense to just kind of like put it out there that like, yeah, there's like all these woo sphere weirdos that love the desert, but like the desert is fucking cool. So cool. So I think that's where I leave, leave it off for today. You know, we might come back around to this. So cool. Okay, guys. Well, I'm super excited that we're talking about desert magic today. Thanks, Nick, for such a good overview. Um, But since we're talking about deserts today, I felt like peyote seemed like a very logical topic. But I want to start by saying peyote is sacred to indigenous peoples in North America, and they've used it for at least 5,500 years. So, Because of that, and because it is so sacred to them, I don't encourage people to go out on like a peyote trip with some white dude with dreads. It is also, I think, super important to note for the podcast purposes that the United States law classifies mescaline, the primary active ingredient in in peyote, as a Schedule One substance. So it is illegal to sell, possess, or ingest. So we're not encouraging you guys to do anything illegal. please, please know that like you're adults and you can make your own decisions, but we're not trying to like get you guys to do illegal stuff. Luckily, 
at least finally, the law does exempt the Native American church from those restrictions, but we'll talk about that in a bit. So let's start by like talking about the plant and like what it actually looks like. So peyote or Lophophora williamsii is in the Cactaceae family, a group of fleshy, spiny plants found in dry climates, aka cacti. These, uh, the thing that's really cool about peyote though, is it's actually like, it's a squat little cactus, right? So it's native to the Southwestern US and Northern Mexico. It's in cultivation all over the world, but peyote is like a Spanish word. It's derived from the Nahuatl uh, peyotl, which means caterpillar cocoon. And I think it's a good way to visualize it, right? So it's like, it's this cute little squat cactus that kind of looks like a big green caterpillar curled up into a ball. So they grow like really low to the ground and they form groups with like a bunch of crowded little peyote shoots. Like it kind of reminds me of what lithops do when they're growing in nature. And they do only get up to like seven centimeters tops. They're either like blue green, yellow green, or like sometimes you'll see reddish green cacti. And then the cactus aerial, which is like the part of the stem that produces flowers and spines. That's where you can really like kind of identify um, peyote from other cacti because they have typically like really significant vertical ribs that have these like low rounded bumps and on the bumps you see these like tufts of like soft yellowish woolly hairs with trichomes and they don't have like spikes on them so peyote cacti flower from march to may and the flowers have thig uh, thigmotactic antlers so the flowers really do just like look like little pink anther uh, antlers like there's not a better way to describe it um and they're like full flowers come from the center of the plants and they're followed by like small bitter but edible pink fruit that contains black seeds and when we see the plant in the wild you have to remember that it can take up to 30 years for a peyote cactus to get up to golf ball size which is when it first starts flowering so that's a long time if you go stomping around in the desert and fucking like knocking over succulents they're really slow growing y'all um cultivated peyote right can... right right yeah it's like you're not knocking over like a dandelion that's gonna shoot up like eight more in five minutes like these are decades in the making it's... be respectful yeah like just like 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 what if what if we just were careful that'd be cool right yeah if we were just like polite and courteous uh, to the living things around us. What a concept. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, cultivated peyote can grow faster. So sometimes cultivated peyote can get to full size within three years. And once in a while, you'll even see them like grafting it onto San Pedro rootstock. And San Pedro cactus is actually another source of naturally occurring mescaline. So put a pin in that. But the top of the cactus or the crown grows above ground, right? And it consists of these like disc-shaped buttons. And these little buttons are cut above the root and dried, after which they can be chewed, boiled in water to make like a tea, or cooked down to produce like a tarry substance that can be formed into pills. But harvesting peyote is a really tenuous thing, right? If it's done properly, the root calluses and it doesn't rot. But if you harvest it improperly, the root rots and the entire plant dies. And this is a huge problem, right? Because the wild plant takes 30 years 
to reach maturity. Like, and so in South Texas, peyote, where peyote grows naturally, it's been so over harvested that now it's considered an endangered species, which is obviously disastrous for native communities. A fucking problem. So let's back up a little bit though, because I want to talk about like Western civilizations, like history with the plant, right? So in 1560, the Spanish priest Bernardino uh, de Sahaguin wrote about the use of peyote and hallucinogenic mushrooms by the Aztecs. And the first like botanical description for Western audiences was written in 1638. But then we like jump forward, right, to 1887. And John Raleigh Briggs, a Texas physician, was the first person in a medical journal to describe his own symptoms after using peyote. So things like racing heart, breathing difficulties. But this pharmaceutical company, Park Davis, who is now a subsidiary of Pfizer, read Raleigh Briggs's uh, article and they were super pumped because they were on the lookout for other botanical sources for potential drugs because it was becoming pretty apparent by that point that cocaine was really addictive and probably shouldn't be casually used in pharmaceuticals anymore. Uh, Park Davis did actually start offering peyote tincture as a respiratory stimulant and a heart tonic in 1893. So then 1913 comes around and New York City pharmacologist Alwyn Gnauer and William Maloney carried out a trial that included 23 people. And what they wanted to do was get insight into schizophrenia by using peyote as a hallucinogen, which didn't work. That, that's never worked. Anytime they think that they can learn about schizophrenia from hallucinogens, they're wrong. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually like, it's, it's like very unscientific. Yeah, the, there's not a lot of like scientific basis. We do see a lot more trials coming about after synthetic after synthetic mescaline was made available in 1919. So chemist Ernst Spath at the University of Vienna was the first person to synthesize it. And then the German pharmaceutical company, small named company Merck was marketing it the following year. So during the second world war, mescaline was abused in the Third Reich's uh, infamous human experimentation programs. So if you're interested in learning more about this, um, there's a few really good series on last podcast on the left where they talk about the Nazi science experiments and like all of the awful things they did. But in this uh, in this instance, Nazi physician Kurt Plotner forced concentration camp prisoners to take mescaline to see whether it would serve as a truth serum during interrogations. But never to be outdone, the U.S. Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which eventually turns into the CIA, was also testing mescaline as a truth drug around the same time. But they did actually kind of rule it out pretty fast uh, because the intense nausea kept the participants from trusting the people interrogating them, which seems fair. So the CIA later recruited Plotner for a project that evolved into the mind control program MKUltra. So America loved bringing Nazi bastards into the warm and cozy arms of the American government because one of the things that the Nazis did that American scientists weren't able to do was human experiments. But America wasn't going to let all of that torture go to waste, not when they could just hire them. Because remember, guys, Nazis got us to the moon. So even though 
it was still being researched by scientists. In 1930, over a dozen states in the, the U.S. had outlawed possession of peyote. So why was this happening, you might be asking? Well, most likely, it has a lot to do with anti-Mexican sentiment uh, reaching a fever pitch during the Great Depression. People love a scapegoat when things aren't going well. If you've ever heard about the Zoot Suit riots in New York, Zoot Suits were literally made illegal to wear because who wore them? Mexican Americans and brown people. And so they're like, well, we're gonna make this article of clothing illegal. So of course, peyote and marijuana which had long-standing associations with the Mexican community, were made illegal for totally scientific oh, sure, and not sure, racist sure, sure. reasons, right? So the legislation during the, uh, the period like leading up to this, there was like so much awful shit going on, right? So it's not until like 1967 that peyote is officially banned nationwide by the federal government. Uh, apparently, the very down with the man mythos of the hippie movement wasn't something that government officials were super into but there's like there's some really awful shit that happened like to native communities also in the lead up to this so like we're gonna cut to today right there's this like new interesting movement called decriminalized nature that's trying to get legislation passed that would decriminalize the big five so that's like magic mushrooms, aboga, ayahuasca, wakuma, and peyote. But there is a mixed response from leaders in the Native American community, including peyote, uh, to including peyote in their legislation. And I think that's totally understandable and valid. So again, I mentioned in 1967 is when the federal ban was passed. But in the early 1960s, as we're like leading up to that mandate, uh, law enforcement officers would regularly ride on horseback across prairies, like literally roadless prairies. They'd get out there at night to break up peyote rituals led by Native Americans. And these efforts were totally destructive to the Navajo Nation's ranching community. Um, Navajo Nation actually makes up the largest percentage now of the Native American church. So that's all kind of like tied in together. And so Native Americans were forced to go through this like very long and costly legal battle to have peyote decriminalized for use in their religious rights. So remember, 1967 is when it was banned federally. 1994 is when they finally got a law passed by Congress to like exclude Native Americans from that. So it makes sense that these people who had to pay all of this money and fight to get the right to have their like sacred plant like legal to them yeah, they're not like, let's just like decriminalize it so all these like white people with dreads can go harvest it and kill these plants that take decades to grow in the desert. But there's also some very fair logic for excluding peyote if the whole like respecting other people's culture isn't enough for you. You can find mescaline in other naturally occurring sources that don't have the same cultural significance as peyote. Again, remember our friend, the San Pedro cactus. Eh? You have other options. I know someone who grows, I mean, it actually grows very, very readily here in Texas in, in our climate. Um, and it's, you know, it's, um, it's, it's kind of, kind of a cute little cactus, the San Pedro. It's like star shaped. It is really cute. And it doesn't have this like really intense, like religious, sacred, cultural connection, but it has mescaline. Also, uh, um, uh, also qu uh, qu quite yep. a bit of a faster grower. You know, once it puts off a shoot, you can get a whole, you know, probably 
six inches of growth in a year, which is a lot faster than 30 years for seven centimeters, a lot faster than 30 years for seven centimeters. Absolutely. Yeah. So like go San Pedro cactus. So Don Davis, who's an expert in pe uh, peyote conservation and a member of the Shoshone Bannock tribes of Fort Hall, Idaho, she said that to us, peyote is an ancestor and a living relative. Cultivation of peyote outside of the ancient terrain it shares with indigenous people is a step towards hybridization and commercialization, which I think is really, really important to remember. You know, it's like these leaders who are opposed to this, like they describe their relationship with peyote as being like deeply embedded in their ancient relationship to like the soil and the rhythms of life in the places that peyote grows, which are the places that they're, you know, that they call home. So there's this really great effort led by the River Sticks Foundation, um, the Boulder, Colorado-based Native American Rights Fund, and the National Council of Native American Churches. Um, so they recently bought a 605-acre ranch in Jim Hogg County, Texas, which is speckled with wild peyote gardens. And there's a new nonprofit called the, uh, the Indigenous Peyote Conservation Initiative. And their board members include like Benali, Sandor Iron Rope, president of the Native American Church of South Dakota, Andrew So, president of the Native American Church of North America, and Arlen Lightfoot, president of the Native American Church of Oklahoma. And this nonprofit helps to manage the land as a place to begin restoring their old traditions and teach a new generation about their spiritual heritage. So there's a lot of great work being done, but I do very firmly believe we should let the Native American communities lead the efforts um, to like decide how we as a larger culture treat peyote. And please like feel free to support these organizations if you're able. But again, you have alternative places to get mescaline. So I, I felt like it was important to cover today though, because I feel like peyote always comes up when you're talking about like deserts and like magical experiences and vision quests. And it's like, we should leave peyote alone, I think. I, th I, 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 I'm inclined to agree. And uh, you know what I will say though, um, you know, we're not encouraging anyone to do anything like that, but I actually, I had a very good experience when I did mescaline and, um, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I, I do psychedelics. I'm not encouraging anyone to do psychedelics, but it is one of those things that does kind of have more of a spiritual edge to it than, you know, do, like a party drug, like MDMA or something. Or like even have, LSD, you know, like it, which is like fun, but it's like, yeah. it's lab made. Um, yeah. yeah. So if you want to learn more though, there is this really great like book that I used as one of my sources. It's Mescaline, a global history of the first psychedelic, uh, which is by Mike J from Yale university press. I also used Wikipedia, um, CM Stork and SM Schreffler wrote an article in the encyclopedia of toxicology, the third edition. Um, there's an article called Tripping on Peyote in Navajo Nation by John Horgan and a really great LA Times article called Why Are Some Native Americans Fighting Efforts to Decriminalize Peyote? So, peyote! Very cool. Very cool. Peyote. Don't, don't fuck don't. with the peyote. It takes, it's so, it's so Yeah, precious. and I loved an excuse to like pull in a lot of my personal academic background in American studies. So, that was fun. Hey, how about right? that? But before we go, Nick, if people want to support the podcast, how can they do that? Oh, well, you know, I'm so glad you brought that up. So 
first of all, you can hit us up on Instagram and you will probably talk to either me or Shannon. I famously love to check my messages on my commute because I take public transportation. Um, and that's at once and Franz pod. Uh, and then the email is once and Franz pod at gmail.com. So easy. Really just so super easy. Um, and then our Patreon where you can watch the video and um, see my beautiful, gorgeous uh, die job right now um, is patreon.com slash Franz pod. And then actually, speaking of the Patreon, um, if you can't join the Patreon, a really great way to support us and spread the love is to leave us a review and rate wherever you're listening. So um, we have a, we even have a little template for you and it's very simple. It's very simple. Um, this podcast is good. Woo! Five stars. Oh my God. Love. So any, any, anyone, anyone who uh, leaves a review that says this podcast is good, will get a, a free tarot card pull from yours truly. So, uh, you know, take, take us up on that. And um, yeah, I think, I think, I think that's, that's it. it. I think rate, that's review, it. subscribe. So Nick, Rate, review, subscribe. Ishtar. Ishtar. Okay, y'all. So I am actually so excited that we are doing this topic this week because we're talking about the foremost deity, male or female, in one of my favorite places, Mesopotamia. That's right, bitches. It is time to drink. It is absolutely time to drink. But so when we're talking about Ishtar, which, uh, you know, generally speaking, is the topic here. There's a, a couple of names that are going to come up. And one of those names is Inanna. And that is the older name. That's the original name. And so when you're looking at the mythology, you're, and the story I'm going to tell is called Inanna and the Descent to the Underworld. So... In uh, Uruk, which was the first city period, the first city. So we're talking like sort of the end of the fourth millennium BC. So we're talking 5,000 years ago. We're, we're literally talking about the first city. Um, and then Inanna worship was so incredibly popular and it did spread to Babylon and it did spread to Assyria. And then that's why we end up with Ishtar. That's why we end up with um, a start even. So we have different names for the same goddess. And so Ishtar though, is sometimes credited as being a child of the sky god Enki. Um, and then also having an older sister, which we're going to get into that. But don't, don't we all know that, um, you know, sometimes it's tough to have a, a sister. <laughs> and, um, but no, so In Inanna or Ishtar or whatever, her older sister is called Ereshkigal. And Ereshkigal is the queen of the underworld. So... So we have the sky goddess, her dad, we, and then we have Ishtar, who originally was sort of, um, they call it, they call the culture uh, 
proto-Euphradian, which re just refers to the, the region of the Euphrates River. Um, so as a, a proto-Euphradian deity was solely the goddess of love and beauty. Think Venus vibes, because actually they say Venus and Aphrodite are very, very much based on Ishtar. That makes sense. And the planet Venus. So um, whereas her brother um, is the sun god, sometimes it's her twin brother, sometimes it's not, you know, no big deal. But um, whereas she is ruled by the planet Venus, which is sometimes the morning star, which is, you know, sort of the love, beauty, aspect and then sometimes it's the, the evening star so it it's visible more at sunset and that was seen as the masculine aspect and sort of the the war jealousy um politics side of things so we have this one goddess with these two aspects um and what's kind of cool about that is that Every other goddess in the Mesopotamian pantheon is referred to, you know, they had these modifiers um, linguistically to indicate whether a name is masculine or feminine. And Ishtar, while fully being represented as a goddess, uh, does have the masculine form of uh, Mesopotamian written name. Um, and that's because she is the goddess of war. And so uh, initially, we had kind of done this one because it's the week of Mother's Day. But one thing that's really interesting about Ishtar being a goddess of sort of love and beauty and all of these things is that she's not a mother goddess. She is not in that role that is solely in the realm of other, other gods in the pantheon. What Ishtar is bringing to the table is, is lust and um, pride, like, you know, this sort of vanity even. Because, yeah, it's like, it feels like thing. big Leo vibes. It's very, very much big Leo vibes. And ambition. Yeah. It's, it's very much ambition. And so one of the things that we always, always, always are talking about with Ishtar is that Ishtar initially, again, was just the goddess of love and beauty, but wanted more and takes over the aspects of other gods. And actually, so there's this story that I'm, I'm just briefly going to tell about Ishtar and um, her father, Inki. And Inki was the guardian of the Mies. So uh, like, I'm me, right? The word is Mies. And the Mies are these sort of divine qualities of humanity and skills even. So blacksmithing and farming and poetry and writing and all of these really, really great things that make humanity, humanity. And there's, there's, a, there's 50 of them listed and I'm not just gonna read off a list of 50 things. I do think it's funny though that prostitution was considered um, one of those great human skills that makes that separates us from um wild yeah, creatures like, you know if you can that. make money making someone come even the gods are saying power to you <laughs> absolutely absolutely so 
Ishtar was not fully happy with with her place among the gods as the goddess of love and beauty. She wanted more power. She wanted to bring more power to her city, which is Uruk, the first city, Um, which I I love saying that, the first city. It really was the first one. There's one first city, it's Uruk. And who did they worship? Ishtar. And so she goes to the temple of her father, the sky god, and basically tricks him into giving her the power of the Mies, which take the form. So basically his thing is, you know, we have to dole it out evenly. So like this village can be good at blacksmithing and these people can be good at poetry. Everything would be out of balance if one group of people got to be good at everything. And she's like, no, I want that for my people. So I'm just going to take it by any means necessary. So she basically tricks her dad. In some versions of the myth, she actually gets him drunk on wine and she's using her power to not get drunk. That's but a cool power. She's like getting she's like she's like getting him drunker and drunker and drunker. And then she's like, oh, don't you remember you like agreed to give me the me's for safekeeping because you're drunk. And I'll give them back tomorrow, I swear. Promise. Pinky um, promise, Dad. Pinky, pinky promise, Dad. So and she wants to go back to Uruk, you know, she's she's leaving. But so the Mies, uh, when she does take them, take the form of this regalia. And so it's this, um, a, it's a day dress, it's a crown, it's a lapis lazuli necklace, it's beaded jewelry, it's a, it's a breastplate of a warrior, it's a golden ring, and it's um, her scepter, the rod of power, which, wow. It's a full fucking fit. cool, right? It's, a, it's literally a full fit. And actually, I really want you to put a pin in that because it is going to come up later on. So she has stolen these and then Inky uh, is sending his uh, servants after her, monsters, all sorts, to try to get the Mies back to restore the balance. Because again, you know, the people of Uruk can't, just can't, should not have that much power, should not have that much cultural influence, but she makes it back. Eventually, I guess she just gets to keep them because, oh, and she has this servant called Ninshaber, and she's going to come up again later on as well. But it actually isn't Ishtar who fights off the monsters that are after the Muse being sent by Inki. Um, it's Ninshaber, her, basically, every god has an assistant in the Mesopotamian pantheon, um, which, and actually Inki's assistant keeps one of the Mies for himself, which takes the form of a spear. Um, And so we have this, um, she's she's acquired the Mies, right? She's all powerful. And Uruk is the number one city in the world and is dominating Mesopotamian culture. And, you know, she's kind of taken on this aspect of being a war goddess as well. And because of this, her sister, who I'm, I do just have to look. I some of these names, I'm so sorry. I'm just like Areshkigal, Areshkigal. It's really quite a mouthful. Um, her sister's husband dies in a war, which is fought in Ishtar's honor, and she is 
absolutely furious because she feels that this whole thing is just about Ishtar's ego. Ishtar is so ambitious. She steals the Mies. She's harnessed the full power of human culture in, in her own honor. And in a way, it almost kind of seems like she's jealous. Um, and so Ishtar, though, never won to back down, hears that her sister is mad and is like, I'm going to come to the funeral and be a bitch. Oh, God, of course. And like, so that that's really where things, and this is, this is kind of like the main story I'm going to tell about Ishtar. So she's like, I'm going to come to the funeral and be a bitch. And she's wearing her full regalia. She is dripping in me's, right? And in the Mesopotamian underworld, there's seven gates to get into the underworld. And so uh, Ereshkigal is like, okay, open the gates one at a time and let her in. But at each gate, she has to take off one of the, one of the me's. And so this is the origin. And so this is going to be familiar uh, from a different story, perhaps, um, which is the Thousand and One Nights, where uh, Salome does the dance of the, the seven veils, yeah. right? And the seven veils, uh, the, the dance of the seven veils is reenacting Ishtar's descent into the underworld. So the se- each of the seven veils being removed is her kind of removing... Um, one of the me's at one of the seven gates to the underworld but she finally makes it into the underworld and well guess what once you're in the underworld you can never leave right right and also she's kind of making a mockery of her sister's husband's funeral uh but by the time she gets there she's naked she's afraid she's powerless even and uh areshkigal is like you you're a bitch why are you like why are you like this? Um, and kills her. So, but your girl Ninshaber. Remember Ninshaber? Every god has an assistant. Well, Ninshaber's job was to stay on the other side of the underworld. And if Ishtar did not make it back within three days to round up the rest of the gods that lived in heaven, so the non-Chthonic deities, if you will, um, and, and save her. And, okay, so here's where it gets kind of funny. So Ninshaber gets everyone together. And by the time they get there, though, so the land has died in these three days because Ishtar is the goddess, also the goddess of spring and fertility. So when she is dead, all of the plants die and the rivers stop flowing and like the world is um, on the brink of an apocalypse. So Ninshaber shows up and, you know, basically what they have to do is they have to give her food, you know, put food and water from the living world on Ishtar's body to bring her back to life, which works. But uh, Areshkigal is sort of counter-cursed by killing her sister. this goddess of life and fertility and she's in pain and it's almost like she's um giving birth is is how they describe it like the pain of childbirth is like brought upon Ereshkigal for killing 
Ishtar. And so she's begging for her life, even. So Ninshaber is like, yeah, we just, we want her body back. We, we're just going to take her with us. Um, and Ereshkigal is like, yes, I'll turn the rivers back on. Like, I will, you know, like, I will bring everything back. Um, but I do actually need, you because it's there there has to be an equivalent exchange so if ishtar leaves someone has to take her place so initially ninshaber volunteers and ishtar who is back to life at this point because of the food moder is like no not my assistant not no like i need you i need you and you know like other people are sort of offered as replacements but she's like, I'm, I'll send someone. I'll send someone, just give me some time. So she goes back, back to the world of the gods, back, to, you know, out of the underworld, right? And everyone has been mourning and crying and, you know, like really, really, really just so upset that Ishtar has left. Um, but she sees her husband, Dumuzid, the god of shepherding, who's just been chilling on a throne, being serviced by concubines, like truly, it seems, could not give more of a, more of a fuck about Ishtar dying and going to the underworld and, and all of this stuff. So she's like, you know what? You should do it. It's you. you should be. <laughs> it's, it's, it's you. Um, and then, so he, she, she sends him to the underworld in her place, like her own husband, because he wasn't mourning hard enough, her. which really is, which really is kind of Leo energy. Like I, like, oh, you were crying? Literally go to hell. Um, but then she has this like insane change of heart and convinces his sister to kind of split the time. So like a little he Persephone does a, type sitch. A little Persephone, Persephone type sitch, but his sister actually does have to take his place in the underworld as well. So like there's, there's at no point is there like an empty- Yeah, they just trade off. They just trade off. They just trade off. Um, and then, so basically after that, she's even more powerful and- you know, but I did want to tell that story, though, because I think it, it kind of personifies, like, first of all, her raw ambition, the fact that she just wanted to kind of shove it in her sister's face um, and went through all of that. And then the fact that, like, her husband was, like, not crying enough and she was like, yeah, go to hell. I love that. Like, literally take my place in hell because you were not crying hard enough. Like, fuck you. But also the fact that she was, like, so powerful, like, and so ambitious and really, truly, the thing that I think is interesting about Ishtar, as far as like representing the power structure in Mesopotamia in general, was that they really had this, this kind of dichotomy that you couldn't be a good leader or like a good military tactician without also being sexy and like being good in the sack. Yeah. So like, that's why she, that's why she rules both was that it was like so important to them. And like all of the rituals in her temple were very, very, very sexual in nature, um, which is kind of hot, kind of hot. But like the idea was that 
if you were horny, you were pow- you were more powerful, which really, you know, here in Taurus season post Beltane kind of feels it's the vibe kind of feels like the energy. Um, and then, you know, so if you were interested in working with with Ishtar, which, you know, like really such a powerful deity and like the original goddess, like that's kind of a cool thing to be looking at and working with. Uh, really the idea of wands does come from Ishtar. Like the idea of like a scepter of power comes from Ishtar, which is, you know, really cool and something we still use. Uh, the podcast is called Wands and Fronds after all. But, um, you know, kind of uh, Venus watching, uh, I think is very, very big Ishtar energy. And actually, you know, I kind of remember my dad used to take us um, to to see Venus in the morning sometimes. Um, and her symbols though, her symbol, a lot of times she's shown with what they call a lion, but it's painted as a leopard because actually the word for lion and leopard used to just kind of mean any big cat. Um, which which actually comes up uh, in English history as well because they talk about like you know fighting lions, but then there's like leopards in the um, the illustrations, and it's like anywho. But all of which to say, um, leopard spots. So like if you you know you had something with leopard spots, that would be good for an Ishtar altar. Um, and famously, in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Um, when Gilgamesh kind of spurs Ishtar's advances, which is a bad idea, by the way, um, she calls down the bull of heaven, which which we would know as Taurus, and uh, he slays the bull, and then she mourns it for a very, very long time. Um, so, you know, it's like bull horns, that, that kind of thing. And um, the eight-pointed star. So this is kind of like the first time that, like, star shapes are are kind of used in in magic and in ritual uh, is in association with Ishtar which I do actually think is really cool considering that like in in Wicca and like uh, a lot of neo-paganism like we have the pentagram which is a five-pointed star but like we're still doing that like we're still using stars as like a magical symbol um but an eight-pointed star, an eight-pointed star is the, the Ishtar star, a scepter. Um, and then, you know, just to kind of like, uh, the reason we're talking about this even is because I was reading Skinny Legs at All. But I do think, you know, like anything that has that kind of um, yonic feel. So in the book, it's a conch shell um, because, you know, the... The inside of a conch shell kind of looks like labia, um, but really, like, like there, there's this very sexual, feminine energy that's associated with Ishtar. That is, that's like separate from motherhood and wifehood. And I really think that there's a lot of power in that. Um, yeah, it it makes me think of like roses too. Absolutely, absolutely. But you know, but it's like a lot of what the patriarchy turned goddess worship into really was this kind of mother archetype, this kind of caregiver archetype. And it's like, Ishtar is not about that. Like she's fierce. She's a warrior. She will get revenge. Like she's self-empowered and she likes to fuck, but she's not trying to have a family. And like, I, I don't know. I think that's, 
I, I think that's kind of good energy for this moment in time. Um, yeah. And that's that's really all I have. I mean, and you know, kind of the int- the the sad thing is is that whereas like Aphrodite and Venus, you know, had continued popularity up until the point of being kind of outlawed by Christianity, Ishtar got lost to time in large part because cuneiform writing went out of style. So while there's a lot, lot, lot of written sources about Ishtar, um, it's fragmentary, it's spread out. um, And really, you know, like it wasn't treated with the same kind of respect that the mythology of the Greek and Roman deities was treated with. Uh, And also we do have to remember that a lot of these, these, you know, sort of myths are 5,000 years old. So even though they did write it down and we have some of it, um, you know, like the full, full, full story is hard to piece together, like literally piece together. You know, a lot of those clay tablets are broken. Yeah, they're Uh, literally puzzle pieces. They're literally puzzle pieces. Um, And Assyriology, which is, you know, sort of the study of Mesopotamian cultures is actually kind of going out of fashion um what I had read was that there's you know it's really just like Oxford which has like a good Assyriology program so as far as like a branch of history it's uh even just like studying it is kind of dying out which is really heartbreaking so um but definitely something I'm interested in and something that I really hope you know doesn't disappear so you know we want to preserve these myths and and, um, you know, just like really appreciate the ancient nature of of these cultures too. So, yeah. but that's all I have. That's all I have about Ishtar. So you should join our Patreon so we can afford to send Nick to Oxford is what we're learning. Apparently, apparently. <laughs> I do have my, my Ishtar dress is drying over here. I'm like, my silk Ishtar dress. Oh my God, of course, of course. I... Yeah. Notoriously, uh, Fran Drescher is like a style icon of mine, and I have a lot of leopard print because you can take the girl out of the trailer park, but 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 she's gonna bring the leopard print with her honey. every time. But I'm just gonna shut up and let you do the tarot scope. Cool. Well, today I have a message for Cancer, which feels very apt because we're recording on Mother's Day. So for you, the zodiacal mother. I have drawn the moon and I love this moon card because the moon is like in a flower. No, I was going to say like what an appropriate card for cancer on Mother's Day. Like, could it be, could it be more on the nose? I don't think so. Um, So I, (laughs) I really personally love the moon card um, because it's really tied to like intuition and subconscious. And I think sometimes depending on your resource, The moon card, I think, can get kind of a bad rap, and I don't think that's fair, and it's hard not to see that and make the connection between, like, lunar cycles and femininity and the patriarchy hating the feminine. So, my little side rant. But, for me, when the moon card shows up, it says to me that, like, you're dealing with some fear and anxiety, right? And it's time for you to, like, slow down. Tap into your intuitive powers, which we know cancers have in spades. 
you know, like lean in, tap into those lunar cycles, like get groovy with the divine feminine, meditate, draw some tarot cards, like really just like tune into yourself and like listen because you, you don't want to let the stories that other people are telling, other people's myths, other people's opinions, like color the picture here. It's like whatever it is that you're anxious about or that you're getting really nervous about or even a little bit scared about, a lot of that is from illusion, right? So it's like you have this inner guidance. Trust it. Like, don't let this fear and anxiety and this bad picture that other people are painting for you be the end of your story. So you already have the answers you seek, my watery friends. But I do, I just love this this moon card because there's like, obviously you always have to have the lobster. And then you've got like the two towers in the back with like the scary mouse and the nice mouse. And to me, it's really like the moon card to me always just feels like the thing that you're freaked out about is an illusion. So trust yourself. And that's all. Well, it's the bitter end. So I guess, what do we say to all of those prickly cactus witches out there? To you dry desert prickly cactus witches, we say blessed be bitches. Blessed be you sandy bitches. Goodbye. Bye now. Yeah, exactly nine years ago today, I went and saw Priscilla, Queen of the Desert at the Bass Concert Hall.